This is Yours Digitally, Episode 1. One final click of the can. Oh, celebrating the end of the day. We're done. Right, good. Fantastic. What are you up to these days? I am. Um, I'm consulting slash being pulled in on a project. A friend's taken over a construction company. Runs an ISP. Nice. Um, and we've taken over the construction company to lay down fibres. So we're trying to put. The UK is very very poorly poorly serviced for fibre to the home. Okay. Um, actually, unlike Greece, which is much, much better, the UK is third from last in the EU for fibre to home. We, The UK has generally got around um, this sort of, I guess what they call EU meddling of trying to give a standard amount of data per home, per yeah. connection, um, by sort of using phrases like super fast and hyper fast, which is sure, sure, not sure. the same as kind of broadband. What is your take on the EU UK thing? Um, I think the EU is stronger with the UK in it. I think the UK is stronger for being in the EU. Um, I think, of course, there are concerns regarding things like who gets to make what decisions. However, I think a lot of the angle in the UK regarding who made those decisions was about a lack of understanding about who was representing us in Europe. And the majority of the UK don't really participate in European elections and never have. It's never been seen to be important. So the UK has been badly represented at a European level and there's been a basically a faction of anti-European people playing you know, sort of revolutionary parliament in Europe. Um, and I don't see how we can kind of get forgiven about that in the short term um, and that would be a real shame if we lose if we lose you I wouldn't know you if it wasn't for EU membership I wouldn't know so many of our mutual friends from traveling in the European tech scene and that would be such a disaster that so many of the UK companies and people couldn't really participate as easily or as cheaply or whatever I think that's a real shame yeah 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 well, we say in Greek, um, the world has its turns mm. and uh, the globe has its turns and uh, it's likely that things will turn again in for some sure. way or the other. Uh, the next generation may choose differently. Yeah, um, sure. I do believe that uh, the last kind of events that, that transpired were you know, an unfortunate set of circumstances that, and many people kind of played on that. People were, uh, people's ideas were kind of toyed with. Um, data had a big role to play with that. Maybe that's something we can discuss a little later on. Sure. Traffic, traffic noise. Okay. So and how, it, how's Athens bearing up? You seem to have done okay. I mean, obviously tourism well, is your big concern, I guess, but like... You know, it seems like we've done okay and I don't want to be a naysayer, mm. but I feel that we probably did okay because of our inset mistrust of government. So, <laughs> who do you trust? You know, you trust yourself, you trust your family, so what do you do? You hunker down. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah. stay home. So while 
it may seem that Europe, Greece has done very, very well in terms of COVID-19 and limiting the deaths, and which we have, it seems. Uh, and it's, it's more of a case that we all kind of figured out that we need to take personal responsibility um, and not wait to be to be told. Although there have been measures and there has been the carrot and the stick and uh, the stick has definitely been there. I mean, there are severe fines or there were severe fines for anyone not uh, not complying with what the uh, what the central government's uh, directives were. Mm. Um, but in, in the end, it seems, well, in the end, I don't think we're anywhere near the end. Uh, but then again, you know, who knows where we are, in what part of this whole journey we are, we're in. And, um, you know, responsibility, I think, that's the key thing here, responsibility. Just understanding who we are and what we can do. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, you know, and I don't, I think this is the trouble, which is, in some ways, we've seen it, especially in the UK, but I think it's universally true, which is, in times of crisis, we look to the government to tell us what to do. And actually, the government's only answer is, it's kind of on you guys to not be idiots. Yeah. And I think what people kind of want is almost like a military-style rule of, you know, anyone leaving the house, the gun's at the head. And obviously, nobody really wants that, but they want to feel controlled in an uncontrollable environment. Yeah. And we're seeing in London the idea of freedom just being slowly exploited and slowly exploited. Well, let's talk all about that. I think these are very, very interesting topics. Hmm. So let me welcome uh, our first guest in our new podcast called Yours Digitally. I'm Stavros Messinas, your host, and I have the great pleasure of having as my first guest a very good friend of mine, Benjamin Southwood. Benjamin, welcome. Hi, good to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm really pleased you've uh, agreed to join this late night podcast that we'll publish very late at night. And uh, the idea is we just jam and talk about things that are on our mind. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about, about you and just introduce you. Sure. Uh, I met you a few years ago when you were involved in a government project uh, mm -hmm. working, with, uh, working with London. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I've been, I've been in startup since I was 18. Uh, mainly up in Cambridge, which is sort of north of London, northeast of London, not far away, obviously, where the university is. And as such, it had a very sort of strong technical background. I was just there doing, you know, IT and plugging things in and then sort of a bit of social media and sort of slowly started getting interested about how this company didn't seem to charge anyone any money, made money, and sort of learnt about startups. And then sort of fast forward about 10 years, I think it was about 29, I needed, I basically decided I wanted to leave Cambridge, move to London, and needed to create networks, set up a little events company called Three Beards. We became quite successful, and then two years after starting that up, I was invited to join the government uh, under David Cameron uh, and the Nick Clegg Coalition to advance kind of London and Britain sort of more widely as a technological powerhouse. We called that initiative uh, Tech City um, and that's now grown into Tech Nation and yeah a lot of my job was trying to get uh, sort of non-technical um, MPs and similar individuals within government to understand the point and power of technology um, and to try and bring them in a little bit into the future because 
I think government tends to work at least five to ten years behind the rest of. I was going to say world. how receptive, how receptive is government generally to the tar- the, the tech startup concept? Uh, then I mean, 2009. I mean, certainly back then, uh, sort of skeptical, um, which is actually probably the right attitude. I think in the UK we've maybe gone a little too far, which is believing that kind of apps and startups can solve all problems of government. I think that's too too much. There's certainly lots of things that ambitious individuals can solve for government. I just wonder whether or not they need to be separate from government to solve it. And effectively. If we continue to outsource government, what does that really mean for government long term? At the time, people were very sceptical. Um, but as ever with politicians, your main job is to sort of tell them how it's going to benefit them. Um, you know, benefiting the taxpayer is is one thing, but that's not as sexy as you know, them getting benefited, unfortunately. So you're dealing with a lot of egos, you're dealing with a lot of... Um, not unlike startup founders, really. Well, no, I mean, but in a different way, at least with a startup founder, they're kind of uniquely focused on one thing. You know, they're boring to the point of they know nothing but their company. Yes. That's fine. But the government people think they're better than that. Do you know what I mean? But they're not even focused on their job. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's egos, but in different directions, I suppose. So that was Tech City, which now is now Tech Nation. Mm. And that have, uh, that effectively created a neighbourhood, quite a large neighbourhood in in, uh, in the centre of London, uh, was it East London, if I'm not mistaken, where a lot of the tech startups now call home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, Shoreditch and, and the surrounding areas benefit a lot. I mean, it was where the the, the, the nexus of that environment already was. Um, you know, and I think I think we did a lot to create change in that environment, and you know, we, we did over the over the last ten years for sure. That change has been significant and and and, and you know, and very important. You know, there are days where I sort of feel like all I did was encourage skyscrapers, but I have to remind myself those skyscrapers are filled with people with jobs, and they wouldn't exist if government hadn't supported them at the time they did. Um, but at the same time. You, I think, like anything, if it's important and it's meaningful, you don't always kind of walk out of it thinking job well done. You think what you could have done differently or what you could have done better. So you know, mixed feelings about that about that job in some ways. But um, I'm very proud of what we achieved. Um, I don't quite have an answer of how I could have done it better, but that's I suppose a good a good question you to keep do it asking. Again, yes, you would if you had the opportunity to do it again. You may you may do it differently, but you would do it again, yes. I think, yeah, no, I would, I would, I really, I did really enjoy it, yeah, for sure. You know, it's yeah. it's very nice to be able to feel, you know, much like you are, like contributing to your environment, right, and contributing to your community. And it's not really about government or nationalism or pride in the English or British or whatever it is. It, you know, it's about trying to help your friends out, and that's kind of what was nice about doing it on a very local level was I was dealing with people I knew very well um, and that made that made the job fun and it made it easy and it everyone knew that we were trying to do the right thing for the right reasons um, yeah. so I'm curious then uh, Benjamin how, what kind of influences does a young a young boy or a young man need to undergo to choose entrepreneurship as a path like you did 
Mm. Was it your parenthood? Was it was it uh, was it your first internship? Was it uh, you know an entrepreneurial streak you might have had in high school or something like that? Uh, no, I th- my sort of working theory is an on. I never ne- I've never liked the phrase of like entrepreneur. That's all, that, that's something someone else can call you. It's not something you should ever like be yourself. Um, I think just you know it's a bit of a made up sort of slightly made up word um, but I think what I see the characteristic of what you would call an entrepreneur in, in, in sort of modern language would be you know it's somewhere between a mix of, of an artist and a criminal right which is in a highly creative individual that's willing to bend the bend, bend the rules of the world to achieve whatever it is they think they're creating and so kind of weirdly I don't think you can teach entrepreneurship. I think you have to, you either learn it or you're doing it, it but you don't, you can't really, um, I don't think you could, I think you can be shown what it might look like, but you have to understand it's the way you do it is unique, right? So it's like, you can't copy somebody else. You can't be Steve Jobs. You can't be Jeff Bezos. You can't be Elon Musk. You can't be, you know, Sarah Sandberg. You can't be, you know, you can't be anybody else. What you have to learn is how can you monetize who you are and what you believe in. And that's quite challenging. Like, because most people haven't really worked out what they believe in. So I don't know if it's really about background or upbringing, but it's, it's a fierce, a fierce self-confidence, by the way, that is, un, you know, that, that goes up and down. That self-confidence is not <laughs> constant. But it's a self-confidence in being willing to follow your idea through to completion and being willing to do whatever it takes to get that idea to that point. And I don't know what the similar, I don't know where you could learn that without just trying it, right? And doing I would agree it. with you that it's an, definitely an up and down thing. And I do feel sometimes that we are charged and then we discharge and we perhaps need our energy refilled or or recharged somehow. What for you is your recharge? So music for me, I play guitar and sing. So that's kind of where I can, I can park quite a lot of emotions and express them uh, and express the things I can't really sort of, I can't maybe sort of communicate to myself. I just know how I feel rather than describing how I'm feeling. So I find that very useful, the same with art as well. And you know, and any any form of the sort of creative industries, film, comedy, literature—they're all things I think are fascinating and 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 should inspire you as an entrepreneur to see, you know, these works of greatness, these works of wonder that still stand. I think you know, if you if you're trying to be ambitious, then that's kind of what you're trying to leave behind—is a business that sort of outlives you or something that outlives you. I think. Those are the parallels between the great writers, the great artists, philosophers, even scientists, is trying to come up with something that is bigger than, better than you are. I wonder though whether they knew that they were coming up with something bigger and better than their lives would be if we look at these great artists, the great writers, the great uh, musicians, whether at the time they actually understood that they were creating something bigger than themselves. I we don't could... know if they knew that, but they certainly were chasing something, right? Which is and that's why so many of them burnt out through like drugs and alcohol and similar, right? Like there's, 
there's a freedom they enable themselves to have artistically, right? A lack of criticism, a lack of um, a lack of care, I guess, right? Just to do it in the way they thought was right. If you look at you know, James Joyce or especially something like Ulysses, it's you know, it's incoherent, but it's beautiful. You know, some of Hendrix's stuff is, you know, completely stoned out of its mind, but it's incredible. And I think, I think it's about getting yourself into a place of freedom, a freedom of thought, a freedom of expression, a freedom of sort of opportunity, a freedom of, of being fit, you know, free from fear, right? The number of people I see with a business that never get it off the ground because they're too afraid about talking about it or too afraid to see if it will fail. You know, all the great entrepreneurs I know have burnt a hundred ideas already. You know, they've got more stories about what didn't work than they have about what did. Absolutely. Absolutely. I often say to people when they talk about fear, that for me, it's taking the fear and putting it so deep down in my memory banks that I can, I need to, I need to scratch away 10,000 layers of, of other memories before I can get to the fear. And I guess that's one way to, to cope with, uh, with uh, those fears that you described, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, um, the fear of bankruptcy, the fear of uh, judgment from other people around you. So yes, absolutely. I would absolutely agree with you that you need to get into a place of freedom, freedom to express and freedom to create. I wonder though, I mean, I was going to ask you a little earlier on as well about university. Um, I never went to university. I know you never went to university. Do you agree that university may for us have been an inhibitor, may have kind of created perhaps a series of walls or a series of ways that would limit our capacity to, to create? So yeah, I, mean, I didn't go to university, and I, but I think not going to university sort of put a bit of a chip on my shoulder about needing to prove myself. So I think in some ways it was motivational that I didn't go because I realized you know, I hadn't really proved myself equal to my peers. But then as soon as I started working and started making money, I realized that I was well ahead of them. And I actually knew more about the real world. And yes, it is good to read books and write essays, but at the same time, I can still read the books and I can read their essays or I can, as I did in Cambridge, go to the lectures, you know, when I had time off and, and learn, you know, I just used to sneak in. I didn't care. I'd go to any lectures I wanted, so I was really lucky. But my big observation is the people who I considered smartest when I was 18 are the people who have stagnated in thought the most, um, which is somehow, especially those who did undergraduates, if they didn't pursue academia, they sort of held on to their little badge of academia and said, look, I went to Cambridge or Oxford or wherever, and I'm clever. And actually, the clever ones, or the people who were sort of weren't showy about their intelligence, the ones that became PhDs, became professors. And I think for some people, the fact they went to universities held them back in their own mind. It's limited them. And it's restricted that idea, which I really believe in, which is the best thing you can know is what you don't know. And the more you know your like blind spots, the better you can teach yourself to understand them. And I think quite a lot of university teaches you a very linear way of thinking. It teaches you one subject quite well, but actually the world isn't one subject quite well. The world is many subjects quite shallow. 
and actually the more rounded you can be in your education i think the more rounded you can be as a business person the more rounded you can be as a human and, and how is how do you think education is evolving to enable that so education is still probably you know my parents are teachers my dad's a professor of education so you know, we have big arguments about this education isn't designed to make people intelligent it's designed to help people function in society and then it evolves into a specialism which is kind of your university but even that isn't really the knowledge of the subject it's merely the introduction to the subject and then you get into the research then you get into the reality of the subject i think we need to educate people that education is a means to an end and not the end of itself and i think you know when you end up with a system like america has for example where you know getting a great college behind you spending fortunes to get there it all ends up being purchasing a luxury good or a fancy bag it isn't about the point of what education is and education isn't limited to classrooms it's not limited to um the time of your life when you're studying you know it should be a universal fundamental truth what you want to do is teach people to learn or to teach themselves that's the trick and i don't think we do that i think we teach them to repeat and i think that's the real shame and i think there's people like me certainly and probably you knowing you which the idea of repeating back what you were told isn't isn't rewarding right i could teach Absolutely. my dog to do that that's not fun what i'm interested in is here's the parameters of a problem here's a problem try and figure it out right and then okay here's the answer and here's why it works do you know what i mean that's what i like that's how i like to understand things and we never want to solve the same problem twice for the sake of solving it i suppose you know once it's solved it's solved let's move on to the next problem well yeah you know we did stupid things in maths of you know showing us you know, sort of problems that had already been solved and you kind of think well this is ingrained human knowledge like what do you know what I mean like, yes we need to understand basics and and the language of, of of thought in every discipline but i think just sort of teaching or showing or trying to educate in a very cool and response way is probably a very boring way for everybody good let's move then slowly into some of the subjects that are close to your heart benjamin um i know you're very very fond of working on things around democracy citizenship education we spoke about education uh, how do you see democracy in the digital age and how how democracy will be evolving in the coming years so i want to be clear which is i don't work very hard on digital democracy but i try and think about it quite a lot and i sort of have a rough theory that i keep trying to sort of write down and and trying to explain and do a very bad job every, every time my suspicion is the combination of capitalism democracy and the internet is the perfect storm and the reasons for that are kind of several fold the internet enables all information to be equally weighted and true and discoverable that's great democracy enables every individual to be able to vote with by and large certain weightings of equality that's great capitalism enables everybody to create equality through hard work and the creation of wealth 
that's great. The trouble is, is when all of those three things become independent on each other, you end up in quite a complicated scenario, which is the information that controls how the voter behaves becomes controlled and managed and can be financed by capitalism and can be exploited. So when you have advertising-driven internet uh, or advertising-driven digital communications of any form, um, whatever shape that may take or protocol that may take, and you're interfacing with the idea that you are voting in your best interests and you're voting for a representative of your best interests, the assumption is you know those best interests, you know your own best interests, and you know the policies by which they're standing for. But by and large, the information you're receiving is completely and utterly controlled by the amount of money that's going into portraying that information. As a sort of feedback loop, that becomes incredibly complicated and incredibly dangerous. Now, where does that end up becomes a quite a fascinating conversation. It feels to me that the representation regarding democracy and capitalism is not equal to the internet. So the internet, anyone can be anyone, right? Anyone can be a dog. You can be the most famous person in the world. You can get 13 million followers. You can get one follower. You can be anything. You can be everything. You can, be, you can start a business. You can, you can do whatever you want. Capitalism will reward you very well for doing whatever people will pay you for. But democracy doesn't. But if all the information regarding who people are and their individual actions is obscured through money and digital identity, and then people are voting regarding these digital identities which are funded for money, it becomes a complete shit show. Who are we voting for? What are we voting for? And what reasons are we voting for? And, you know, Greece had some of the most interesting discussions in the last 10 years regarding economics, regarding what is money, what is debt, how is debt work on an international level. That level of discourse failed because the majority of people can't understand the level of detail required in governance. And so you have, you have three things, democracy, the internet and capitalism. But that doesn't equal how a country's run. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Absolutely. There's another layer above that, which is even more complicated, which deals with how other countries work with other countries, etc., etc. But those three fundamental flames that I talk about somehow exacerbate all of that, right? So Greece could have, Greece should have won the argument, by the way, with the EU bank regarding its terms of debt. But it was seen, it was seen internationally or at least Europe-wide as an incredibly risky, dangerous move. But when you looked into the detail of why, and you looked at what Yanis had actually written and talked about, it seemed very sane. It just was all the reporting around what Greece was doing to the, in, certainly in the UK media, was, was communicated incredibly poorly, right? So all of these sorts of barriers of I guess back to education mean that we don't really understand the economy we don't understand government we don't really understand what we're being told and the internet exacerbates that capitalism exacerbates that and democracy exacerbates those truths and that's kind of where I hit a certain limit of how do you break that right 
if that's the truth, how do we move forward? And that's where I'm still sitting, struggling. The only thing I come back to is the same old answer as ever, which is cooperative groups um, that work together in their community's best interests at a very local level. And hopefully enough of those scale up to create a bottom-up government that's led by people for the people, for the reasons the people choose. Well, I'm sure that Yanis will be very pleased you're saying that. I'm sure some of his followers that might be listening to this and friends of ours uh, will be quite pleased you made those references. Um, I'm a I huge fan. I'm a huge fan of DM25. Like, I think, you know, I think, I do think conversation about politics has dropped off and I don't think the internet helps that. I think it only exacerbates the sort of partnership piece of talking about what do we want the future to look like, right? It just makes it into a sport. It makes it into a tribal battle between I don't agree with you, so you're wrong, you know, and I don't like any of that. Sure, sure. It can be very tribal. I have watched quite closely what DM has been doing internally with uh, with the tools that they're using and how they're running their decision making and how they're doing online voting with oh, cool. groups and it has been quite impressive and i think that it'll be quite a hard act to follow um, for sure and uh, people are telling me similarly inside uh, extinction rebellion the sort of way they structured it and the decision making processes within it are like really fucking revolutionary and, and actually the, you know, the the main founder whose name i forget has built it in such a way that it lives without him. Like there's no central authority figure that it, he's really managed to decentralize that kind of chain of command in a way that seems, I wish to learn more, but seems very impressive to the sorts of ideas you and I talk about. Well, that is quite often the problem with party politics in, in that mm. the, they are they are people centric or leader centric. And, uh, you know, one leader or one personality will effectively run that part, party or the ideology behind that party for life um, and of course that isn't the case in very mature societies but uh, uh, certainly has been the case in Greece uh, you know a country that I know quite well mm. yeah I mean it does feel like effectively if you build a pyramid there's always a king at the top of that pyramid and you know as soon as they're at the top that chimpanzee doesn't want to get down and that's the end of it right it's yeah. it feels like we have to break that idea that one person is responsible and no, no that's, that's a very been. foolish way to think about an organization right surely we're all responsible absolutely because no 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 pyramid was ever built by a king alone god no right as much as they would like to write the history books that said they did of course they didn't right absolutely these are the three phases, the sort of three phrases that I sort of live by at least and have helped me in when I'm sort of struggling. I think, I think the first one is remember that everything you see was built by a person. I think sometimes we forget how much power and agency we have in the world around us and that we lived in a, a built environment. So remind yourself that everything you see and touch was built by a human at some point. So, you know, anything is possible. Um, the second is um, start local, but act global. So you know, work immediately with your peers to build something that works, right? I don't care if it's five euros, 10 euros of sales, whatever it be, however you need to validate your idea or the, the scheme or the plan or the whatever it is you want to do, 
start super local and have a plan to work out how that, that goes big. And then I think the Steve Jobs one of, you know, stay hungry and stay foolish, which is, you know, never settle and don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think it's amazing what you can learn. Like I didn't, you know, when I was 16, I didn't know how to play guitar. I didn't know how to program. I didn't know how to, you know, I knew a bit about plugging in computers. I didn't know how to do presentation. I didn't know how to stand up in front of people. I didn't know what investment was. I didn't know what money was and how to raise capital. Like you know, the things I have learned in my life in the last 25 years astounds me. I think too many people think about zero to 16 being the, the bit that shapes you and it isn't. It's, it's everything but that. It's, you know, high school especially is particularly bullshit. Um, you know, it gets better, but it takes a long time. You know, when you're as old as we are, right? I'm banging on the door of 40, you know, life is nice, man. People are good. You know, Absolutely. People have settled down. They've stopped being angry. It's nice. It's really nice. What makes you angry? Uh, injustice is the big one. Um, you, made a, you made a quote, uh, or you use a quote of a very famous philosopher in one of your creative mornings talks that I saw on, on YouTube. If if the machine of government is of such a nature that requires you to be an agent of injustice to another, then I say break the law. And you're describing the maverick change agent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you. the world is created around us. The only things that are not are the trees and the rocks and the ground and the soil and the plants and the animals over which we have no domain. Everything within the human domain is entirely ours. Everything within the built environment is entirely ours. The laws that we listen to, the taxes that we pay, they're all under our control. And it is power and structure that has constantly tried to ensure that we don't realize that reality. And I think entrepreneurs by and large understand that, which is why they're often so frequently anti-government. Um, because they know that the world, you know, the history, history is for the writing, right? It's not for the reading. And it's about sort of trying to, trying to make the change in the world you want to see, as Gandhi said, right? You know, and you know, in this day and age, there's nothing wrong with you know, getting paid along the way to do great things. I would agree. Benjamin Southworth, thank you so, so much for being my first guest. on Thank your you so much for asking me, Stavros. Love you, man. so much. And uh, keep on rocking. I know you're involved in a very interesting project. You're putting more fiber around the UK. Yep. And, uh, we can never have enough fiber. We never have, never have enough connectivity. I hope not, man. We wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have it, man. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to do, especially given the crisis. Well, thank you very much, Benjamin. Have a pleasant evening. You too, dude. Thanks. Thanks.